Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. The biggest mistake um, in, 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 leading, um, in leading my company is not to, to apply um, the, the concept of operational leverage and getting operational leverage in my company. And what that basically means is um, I always like I'm, I'm very good at many things and I always feel like if I can do it, why shouldn't I be doing it? And really coming to understand that it can actually be harmful if I don't delegate enough. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed, episode 121. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Andrea Feigl. As Health Finance Institute's CEO and founder, Andrea brings extensive leadership experience in academia, the public sector, international organizations, and the global nonprofit sector. Her past work focuses on the economics and policies of preventing and treating the economic burden of chronic diseases, as well as on health financing and governance, UHC, and cost effectiveness of, effectiveness of chronic disease interventions. Apart from being the recipient of multiple prestigious awards, she has also authored several high-level reports, including development aid flows for chronic diseases, for the Center of Global Development and a leading WEF Harvard report on the global economic burden of chronic diseases. Andrea was a visiting scientist at Harvard from 2015 to 2020 at the School of Public, of Public Health and is a Salzburg Global Fellow. Andrea, I'm so glad to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. The pleasure is all mine. And uh, it always is scary when one hears one's own uh, bio right out loud. So um, yeah, thanks yeah. for it's, having me. It's almost as scary as me having to read through all of that and try not to make too many mistakes. So so thank you for sharing uh, a bit about your story. But honestly, you know, I can't do justice to your story nearly as well as you can. And reading through that bio, I'm sure was a great start in terms of giving people a sense of who you are and what you do. But I would love to hear a little bit more about yourself and specifically your journey and how you got to where you are currently. Absolutely. So right now, as you've mentioned, I am the CEO of the Health Finance Institute. We are a Washington, D.C. based nonprofit. And we, what we care most about is making sure that those who do not have access um, financially or physically to chronic disease care and prevention and treatment um, are afforded that access. So to give you a number, 80% of the burden globally of diseases is caused by chronic conditions. 60% of that burden is in, in uh, developing countries and only 3% of development assistance financing goes to low and middle income countries for these conditions. So wow. yeah, and, 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 and that number and that, that inequality is something that we really care about changing and are advocating for and are, are, are helping to basically generate evidence and making sure that evidence doesn't sit on dusty shelves, but actually gets translated. Got it. And so, so, yeah, go ahead. What were you going to say? Ahead. No, 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 please. Feel, feel free to add more. But um, by the way, just um, it's, it's a seasonal weather change for me. So I'm struggling a little bit with, um, with allergies at the moment. I apologize. But I do want to ask you, so you're in medicine. How did you shift your focus 
from being a direct provider to thinking more globally about the issue of costs specifically for chronic disease and the the inequalities that you mentioned. Yeah. So yeah, I I, I do actually I have a, a doctorate in in health uh, and global public health and health economics. So I, I'm actually I was accepted to medical school, um, but I actually never um, I actually never went to medical school. So I just want to be very um, honest about that. Okay. Thank you for being clear because I missed that. That's my yes. bad. Um, no, no, no. Um, I'm almost there. You know, I always thought when I was young, I loved, um, you know, to hear read about international development. I was in awe of the work that organizations like Doctors Without Borders do and perform and um, but also very interested in benchtop research and always thought about how lucky I was growing up in Austria. You asked me where I grew up from and we have a very good universal healthcare system there. And whether you're able to see your primary doctor soon or able to afford your cancer treatment, that you know financial insecurity or insecurity of a system never really what um, was very present. So I, I had a great, um, I was very lucky. I attended an international high school um, for the last two years. We were in Norway, literally in the middle of nowhere. We were 200 teenagers from 83 different countries. And so you learn a lot about the realities in different countries, different healthcare systems. And I always was very drawn both to biochemistry and, and healthcare per se as sort of a conduit of change, making the world a better place, if you will. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, if, if we had to say like, what were the two reasons to go into health policy and make policy change? Um, I think one reason was personal. I remember being an international student in Canada um, at a great university, but we were we didn't have um, as students we didn't have dental care, so it goes from province to province in Canada. And I used it runs in my family. I always had dental issues, but as you know, these things can be very expensive. And I was struggling to pay those pay- bills. And our student body president back then, he was an international student as well. He negotiated a a dental insurance policies for our students. And like it helped me so much, you know, I was able to get my teeth cared for without having to work crazy hours. Like I was working 80 hours a week and, you know, trying to do my schoolwork. And I'm like, wow, like, you know, each dentist or each doctor obviously has an impact, but you can have even more impact if you work at the policy level. So that was really profound for me. I'm like thinking, I want to, I want to be at that level. I want to make change at that level, you know? And then also um, just reading the statistics back then, like 40 million Americans were uninsured, you know, um, working on these global um, studies that showed that some countries like don't even know how much they're spending vis-a-vis cancer, like 50% of childhood cancers in low and middle income countries don't get diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And you know what that means? Like, what that means right. is basically they they suffer an early and unjust death. And I thought, I want to be part of the solution. It needs to be, obviously, we need a whole global movement for that solution. But I wanted to basically do what I can in my capacity um, and with my passion and my little influence that I have to make it to make a difference. Okay, so so translate for the for the uninitiated, for the people who don't understand, you use the term policy level a few times. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, when you're talking about making changes, it sounds like, you know, you're trying to get into the the awareness, if you will, of of government officials or other individuals in the in the medical world to to really start 
to make meaningful change, to create more opportunity for access and equality and whatnot. But practically, what does that look like? Who are you talking to? Yeah. What What are you sharing with them? And how does that conversation translate practically, whether it's to the everyday American or to people throughout the world? How, how does that sort of walk us through that process a yeah. little bit with that, without all the, without all the great. Yeah, let me detail. give you, like, let me give yeah. you a couple of examples and just stop me if I'm getting too long winded. So for example, um, so there, different countries have different, um, uh, different policies for health. And for those who are listening in America, the, you know, ACA, the American um, uh, Affordable Care Act is one of those policies. And obviously there were multiple people and policymakers and politicians and all what have you involved. So what we do is we provide evidence that shows if you invest in health early, you actually save money and you increase GDP growth. So um, one of the projects we're working with is with collaborators in Mexico in one state. And the way their policy there works is that um, you can get access to insulin if you have diabetes, but if you have type one diabetes, the policy right now isn't written in such in a way that you can access the correct insulin. And you have to pay out of pocket because again, the policy does not cover what they call consumables, which is like the lancets for your finger pricks, the monitors, the test strips to understand your blood glucose, but in order to not go into a coma or a shock you have to basically manage your blood glucose really well so we are working with um and actually congresswoman um there at jalisco state and she also lives with type 1 diabetes and so she is um has made arguments and actually passed legislation to allow funding allow for funding for um, children without access, you know, who are too poor, for, uh, their parents can't afford their treatment to set up a center. And what we do is we take those numbers um, and help them help show that, you know, if now the parents don't have to go to 24 different pharmacies per day to find the right types of insulin, but it's all provided in the center. The mom can go back to work. The child has better food. The family doesn't have to rely on government assistance, that that health actually you know, investment in that health is cheaper than those families having to rely on government assistance. We've also helped create a market for um, for glucose monitors, right? So we take that evidence and then we go to, you know, we present it to foundations. We can present it to other state governments. Say, hey, look, they've invested some money, but we were able to leverage that investment and get um, philanthropy to come there as well. So you don't have to carry the whole burden. And besides, on your social expenditures, which at the you know comes out from the same government budget, you're actually saving money, right? So, and then they can ev evaluate that evidence and say, why don't we also institute that maybe statewide, or we do a pilot program and things like that. So I hope that's not too technical, but you know, so it, but it's trying to work understanding the system, seeing what some of the challenges are and how that can be changed. And most of the time, um, our work involves multiple stakeholders from the private sector, from philanthropy and the government. So if governments have already a very strong system, um, for example, in European countries, in the past, I did work with an organization called the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD. Look it up. It's in Paris. Um, it's a great it's a great organization, but they deal directly with governments. So we would write um, like annual 
health reports or public health reports looking at um, the health system assessment saying what are the strengths and weaknesses and then um, there was a ministerial conference and a health meeting once once a year it was like a ministerial conference so we had all the ministers from the OECD countries representing the high income countries in the world saying here's how our health systems are performing obesity is a big issue too much alcoholism is a big issue it's costing you here are some of the policy options that you can implement and then then they would take it back um you know back to the halls of the ministry and try to see how they can maybe play around with po with policies that could improve access to to treatments prevention public health wow. interventions okay so i mean th what you're describing is incredible and um as as a human being i'd love to go deeper into you know all these elements associated with with healthcare and and understanding you know the the pros and cons so to speak of investment in in health as it relates to gdp and as it relates to individuals and quality of life and all of that however because it's a leadership podcast i'm going to shift it a little bit um, i still want to say in the topic but i want to ask you from a communication standpoint from a persuasion standpoint you mentioned you've got many stakeholders representing different interests some public interests some private interests i'm sure uh you you reference different countries mm -hmm. and different policies within those countries so i'm trying to wrap my head around let's call it maybe the totality of everything but i don't even need to go there necessarily in in these conversations that you're having here's the data here's what we're finding I'm sure you find people who are warmly receptive to your information and are ready to run with it. And I'm sure you've got plenty of people who are, you know, recalcitrant, who are kind of like holding, holding tight and where things are for whatever their personal motivations are. So what is your process or what would you recommend for, yeah. for leaders, whether internally within their, you know, talking with their own people or externally trying to be persuasive and trying to make change on a global scale. Yeah. What are some of your, your techniques? What are your, some of your thought processes around change management, persuasion, idea sharing, and ultimately, you know, getting to where you want to get? Yeah, no, I think this is a super good question. And actually it's one of the reasons that I left you know, a more academic work and started an organization that acts more as a broker of evidence and a broker between two different sectors. And um, and here's why numbers aren't enough, right? Like just because the numbers are big doesn't mean we're gonna do something about it. People have to feel, and I did like a study looking at what are, you know, why is it that we have so much suffering and we accept suffering um that is chronic but we don't accept suffering that's acute and what is it about the issue and the issue dynamics that 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 make these chronic diseases so un unfundable and i've written a paper for example you know on non-communicable diseases being a misnomer because it kind of starts with non so it's like a non-starter and we try to rename it to make it more palatable so um so the way we've set the organization up is really grounded in in an understanding around how we think that change can happen and so there is a notion that um is used often in in business speak and it's called a shared value space and that shared value space and shared value report was a report um that was spearheaded by professor michael porter who is a very famous business professor at harvard basically saying we have to find that common ground 
in here in healthcare, that shared value space between the public and the private sector, if we want to actually move forward in chipping away um, on this like large problem. So the, the notion is, is yes, there is a need for public intervention alone. Yes, there is a great need for business alone. But where is there a shared value space where better health outcomes can mean a better bottom line and can mean better better health right and better economic growth so for example take diabetes you know um, if you don't treat it early um, you or don't you know detect it early you're leaving out a whole population that may need have may need to have access to to um, uh, medical devices and, and, and drugs. At the same time, you then have people present and get diagnosed in the ER. They're, they're blind, literally blind. And, and this is the first time they're diagnosed with diabetes, right? They can't work, they can't be productive member to society and their families and things like that, and everybody loses. So our sort of theory of change for making the argument is we come in with strong numbers. So data is very important in our process. But we also find like what you know who cares we we find that space where um the intervention focuses on that shared value space and that shared value space can mean by doing this we create better health we create less fiscal pressure on the government and we create more market access for the private sector players involved and then it becomes much easier to move forward than if you're trying to sell solidarity and data and and caring about sometimes issues where we think okay there are these people are obese like they should just stop eating you know like it's it's much more complex than that so mm -hmm. but so, but so you know I we wanna, are not as good as we wish yeah. to be <laughs> i'm just saying if there, i'm sure there's better ideas out there and i would love to okay. learn more <laughs> Okay. Okay. Who knows? Maybe somebody listening will uh, will reach out to you. But but talk about a little bit more. I know you mentioned it multiple times in your answer. This idea of shared values or shared valued space. Um, you know, it's interesting because I'm a former head of school, and I talk about that often in, in in conversations with with my guests. And one of the things that I sometimes reference is the introduction we did one year of a, a values based behavior system in our school where instead of just pointing to, you know, that's that's disrespectful or that's not okay or sort of reactive to student misbehavior, we, we establish values. And so we said, we want to be a school where we represent these four values and they were safe, friendly, respectful, and responsible. We had a whole program around it. And let's take respect for a moment because that's the one we, we, we drilled down on first. And we said, well, what does respect mean on the school bus? What does it mean in the common spaces? What does it mean in the lunchroom, et cetera? And this way, when a behavior was not aligned, we would say, is that a manifestation or does that, does that demonstrate respect? Does that show respect or not? And that's an easy question, relatively speaking, for a student to say yes or no. It's also easy for teachers to be able to say, is that, you know, constitute respect? And this way we can promote what we want and of course discourage, but at the same time, we're working around a, an objective value, let's say an yeah. objective metric. So what I'm curious to know is, you know, part of persuasion is, getting people to see things differently. If you're coming at it saying these shared values, so to me, that would make it easier if we all agree fundamentally, these are the values that we yeah. aspire towards, then that conversation should be 
should be easier to accomplish. Yet at the same time, I imagine that despite having these values, we also have these, for lack of a better term, bottom line realities or other inconveniences that might get in the way of those values coming to fruition. So I'm curious to know, number one, how do you how do you create those shared values? I don't know if you, you kind of walk into it or if you have to help yeah. establish them. And number two, when you see that there are headwinds around those, because I was thinking also, you know, you might have these long-term goals and say long-term over 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, you're going to see longer life and better quality of life and better GDP and all these things. But maybe in the very, very short term, you know, month, six months, a year, five years, not necessarily so. You may not see it as as clearly. And people are interested in success today because they may not be around in five, 10 years from now. So how do you manage the short term versus yeah. the long term, which I'm sure you're really after in all of this as well? Yeah. No, I think this is a is a super great question. And just I mean, kudos to you for setting up those debt value system and making respect front and center. I I have a 10 year old and uh, we are working on respect um, on a 24 seven basis here. So um, at the same time, I'm like, how lucky were you or how lucky would I be if I can go into the global health uh, system as a principal and say, we care about, you know, preventing early deaths and therefore everyone has to care about that right now. I mean, I would love that. And sadly, um, we don't have a global health governing body in a sense Like we have the World Health Organization, but it's not a standard setting agency in a sense that says like, except for like the framework convention of tobacco control, which countries have signed on to. And it's the only legal binding um, multinational agreement where people, where countries are saying, well, we are committed to lowering um, tobacco consumption, cigarette sales, bans on cigarettes, bans on youth smoking rates, things like that, lowering youth smoking rates. Um, there is, and there's international health regulations about when people share data, such as in pandemic settings. But there's nothing going around saying like we have to care about you know lowering more morbid obesity or 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 diabetes rates or um, improving childhood cancer survival right so we are we are literally walking into space we're saying okay we have to we have almost we're value takers not value setters in a sense so it's basically and then we hope that if we work with those that whose values align, which there are through successes in that space and proven, you know, proven impact that then our sphere of influence will grow. So we have work on advocacy and we, we say, you know, I think data, like we use a lot of data informed arguments where we say, um, you know, um, for example, wellness linked insurance companies, if you have um, engaged um, participants in your insurance schemes that you know engage in exercise and weight loss behavior and things like that you will save your they will be more productive employees so have a look at what good it can do for you so we're kind of like assuming certain value sets and trying to work with them mm -hmm. um so and um i think in the global um so so in, in a sense we're saying we want to we want to go in where we understand what what these values are and then really, really go in and say and change behavior for saying we can give you a buy in right so the, the the school policy worked around respect for the students because there were consequences because. They benefited. From a reputational aspect or be you know like I don't know things that they were allowed or not allowed to do by aligning with those values that you mentioned right. 
Yeah, so, they were incentivized to do so. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if we we make an argument, we show who benefits and who pays, essentially needs to be the same person. And often, you know, investing in prevention can be like, well, I'm not going to benefit because it's free further down the road. And we say, well, here's how you can benefit in the short run, right? And, and, and here's what it does right now. Like, even if a person commits to once a month, um, you know, engaging in physical activity, by the end of this year, you will have saved $1,000 per person right. in that company. And much shorter term, we can't really do that on chronic diseases, but that is relatively short term compared to, you know, taking vending machines out of schools and 30 years down the road, those cohorts will have less or fewer, like lower obesity rates. So yeah. we are trying to really focus in on, so our way of persuading is like, we're trying to find that, where do we have evidence that we can act a little bit quicker? And then through that success, then build a story of, of wider system buy-in. At the yeah. global level, what I have found, um, and this is, I don't know if there's a theory or business writings around that is sometimes just having the courage to be the first one to speak to speak out on yes we need financing so um, there was a lot of money going towards infectious diseases um, HIV AIDS malaria um, and uh, and that's absolutely important we need that money to go there and as an international community we said oh you know there's so much more money in HIV AIDS we shouldn't really ask for more funding you know well the pandemic happened and we went from 30 billion dollars a year of development assistance for health to $60 billion with pretty much zero increase for chronic diseases. And what we have always said is there is money, we just need to argue for it and we need to stop seeing it as a zero sum game. So what we have seen is we have altered the dialogue among uh, advocates. So by saying we need more funding and we're not afraid to advocate for it, we have given others license to do so as well. And now there's many more organizations and actors pushing for the same and not being afraid to ask for it. So it's almost like um, giving, like allowing people to say it is okay to advocate for change and, and, and them not feeling that they are the first. Um, and, and then as a collective, I think we can be more convincing. So sometimes just not, if you see the data and you think the data give you credibility for making a both economic and humanitarian argument, um, sometimes being willing to be the first and be that leading voice. And then I think just repetition. I think repetition and sending the same message and endurance um, can also be very, very effective. I think that, you know, partners that have not wanted to work with us because they were so skeptical about a startup nonprofit to, to do what we're doing are now coming around and saying, oh my God, we've been following you. We would be honored to work with you and get in your calendar. Um, and I think these are sort of like planting those seeds and being willing to wait for these seeds to grow um, has also been been effective. And then one of our one of a person a person that I really look up to her name is Helen Clark. She was a prime minister in New Zealand, and then she led the UNDP, the UN Development Program, which is one of the largest UN agencies. And she was runner up for UN Secretary General, and she would have been the first female UN Secretary General. And she advised um, on when we were getting started, and she said to me. I was like, do you have any 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 um, 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 ideas for our success? And she says, just be the best in your field. And I'm like, well, that's easier said than done. But sometimes, you know, I think just striving to do your best and not moving away from that can also be very effective in change in creating change. Yeah, yeah. There's so much to respond to. Unfortunately, we're not going to have time to dive into all <laughs> of it. But I love, I love different pieces. I'll sort of highlight some things that I heard. 
Number one, be courageous. You know, I think we often um, impose limiting beliefs on what's possible. And uh, my attitude is typically, you know, what what's the, what's the harm? You know, go for it. What do you stand to lose? So maybe you'll get pushed back. Maybe someone will make fun of you. But there's so many times where I've pushed beyond what was stated as real or, re or realistic, I should say. You know, even in the space that I operate in now, in my coaching space, you know, a lot of people told me very few people transition out of school leadership, which is where I was, into uh, the work of coaching both in in schools as well as for for businesses and made successful careers out of it. And I didn't take that as a reason why I couldn't pursue it. And you talked about really establishing credibility. I think there are in every industry, just a few people at the very top that people look at and say, these are the best investors, the best actors, the best politicians, the best, you know, experts in other areas, whatever it might be in, 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 in healthcare and medicine. And so when those people establish themselves there, in leadership, you know, you then become the go-to for everything. People aren't interested, it seems to me, in the 98, maybe even 99% below the very top one or 2%. We always want that very, very top. And so if you can establish credibility to put yourself there, I think that that opens doors for you and creates this sense of, you know, almost automatic acceptance that yeah. a lot, that most people don't, don't don't benefit. And one final point before I ask you uh, the final, I guess will be the final question of the segment, um, is that you know there's a there's an acronym WIFM, which is what's in it for me. And you talked about that before with regards to the leaders. And I'm not going to see the benefit of it. It's too long term in nature. But from my vantage point, um, if you can identify as a leader, what does that individual, the listener, stand to gain? It may not be as 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 grandiose as what people in the future stand to gain, but if you can give them something that they will take away on a personal level, whether it's because they've benefited individually yeah. or because of their, their their political standing or other factors, then you really will have a much more receptive audience. And so I think as a leader, you know, listening to our conversation, we always want to think about the people who are listening. I didn't mandate that that behavioral program, obviously the students didn't get a vote, but it was discussed and we had teachers involved and we had a whole committee and we really developed it in a way that was as, as collaborative as we could, considering that we actually did need to make a decision. We couldn't be fully consensus-based, that wouldn't make sense, but we did try to create as much consensus behind it as possible because yeah. we knew at the end of the day, the teachers needed to be the drivers. So we needed to get them need to get them involved as well. So yeah. you really have shared, Andrea, uh, a tremendous amount, and I'm sure you want to respond. But I'm going to selfishly ask you one one final question for this segment, which is share with us, please, the biggest mistake you've ever made and what you've learned from it. Um, I think the the biggest mistake um, in, 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 in leading, um, in leading my company is not to, to apply, um, the, the concept of operational leverage and getting operational leverage in my company. And what that basically means is, um, I always like I'm, I'm very good at many things. And I always feel like if I can do it, why shouldn't I be doing it? And really coming to understand that it can actually be harmful if I don't delegate enough. And so basically like there, there are certain things that, 
um, such as when it comes to business development, when it comes to outreach and being the face of a company that only one or two people in a company can do. And so therefore doing anything that somebody else can do, I shouldn't really be doing. And I, it took me, it took me a very long time. And I think perhaps for, for the, for the health of our, of, of the company really a bit, a bit too long. And I'm trying to readjust this right now. And people say, well, is that really a mistake? And I mean, I'm looking at sort of the fallout of it right now from, you know, vis-a-vis the board, vis-a-vis something else. And, and I'm really trying to apply these lessons. Um, however, um, I'm, I'm going to give you, um, a second type of response. So I'm usually a very thoughtful person in going in, going into, um, decision-making processes. And then sometimes things just don't work out, right? Like things just don't work out. So I actually have like very little regrets based on the information that I'm going on in with and Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, who was a Nobel laureate, he said, like, you should judge decisions by how they were made and not by their outcome. Now, that's a very mature way of looking at decision making and maybe sometimes bad outcomes. But that's mm-hmm. how I like to look at my life. I like to say, am I making decisions the best way possible? And yes, I have fallen and I have tripped up and things like that. But when I look at how did I make decisions, I actually have very few things I regret. And um, so I encourage listeners to to maybe have a look into that type of decision making processes, because I think you, you can rest more easy at night when, when you yeah. make decisions in that way. Super powerful. Both of them. I think delegation is way underutilized um, by leaders. In fact, I just completed a delegation masterclass. Uh, for actually, this was for school leaders, but it, I, oh, wow. I've delivered it for all types because a lot of people just don't know how or they think that it takes too much time or whatever the reasons are. And to your point, there's always something, whether you want to empower other people, but more importantly, you have to, as a leader, I believe, really focus on you know your 80-20. What are, what are the things that you need to be focusing on because those are going to be the have the have the greatest impact? for the team, for the company, et cetera, and, and be willing to let go of everything else, even if you used to do it, even if you love to do it, because that's what your company needs. And I think that's true for organizations, for schools, you name it. And the other point too, you know, I agree with you. We all, we often live, I know I did for a period of time in, in this world of regret. You know, I could have, I should have done differently because the outcome didn't support, you know, what I wanted to accomplish. Yet at the same time, our job is to make the very best decision we can, go all in, and let the chips fall where they may. So, Andrea, that was a very powerful segment. We're going to transition now to the uh, to the rapid fire, which, as its name implies, is short and sweet. Something about Austria, which is your homeland, that very few people know. Um, that we uh, that we speak German and we are a European country. Okay. Um, my first U.S. passport had birth place of birth as Australia, and I had to Ooh. teach the passport officer that indeed Australia and Austria are different countries. People get that confused all the time. Crazy. Two reasons why everyone should dance more. Um, it's good for your health. It's good for your brain. It makes you happy. I cut that out of your bio, but I do know that it was in there. So I, that's Absolutely. why I included it. Yes. Okay. Next one. Three morning rituals. Oh, um, I love my cappuccino. Um, I take a seven minute walk, I'm meditating to calm and chai and um, sunlight. Awesome. The importance of a coach or mentor from one, the lowest to 10, the highest. 11 out of 10. <laughs> okay. I appreciate the plug. Finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. 
Prioritize, prioritize, prioritize. I love the two by two matrix by seven habits of effective people looking into important, urgent, important, non-urgent. Focus on the important, non-urgent at least an hour a day. Awesome. Okay. So how can people connect with you, Andrea, and learn more about your work? Yeah. Um, I'm very um, active on LinkedIn. So my name and LinkedIn um, gets you gets you to my page. Um, Andrea at healthfinanceinstitute.org is my email. And on Instagram, which I have five pictures on, I'm at dancedoc. So. Okay, there you go. So leave us, please, Andrea. You've, you've shared so much, but I'm going to ask you for one final life lesson. Um, yeah, I think do the internal work and listen to your gut. Mm, short and sweet. Very powerful. All right. Well, it has been a pleasure. You're doing great work. I, I salute you and I thank you for being with me today and for having this conversation. I've learned a lot from just not only hearing about what you do, but also how you go about doing it. Uh, so thank you for that. I'm sure my listeners will be extremely enlightened uh, by this episode. And I certainly wish you much continued success in all you do. Well, thanks so much for having me. And I equally learned a lot. And thanks for all that you do. Awesome. Have a great day. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen. 